Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Soon after I moved to Ennis Diamond, I realised I needed a party piece for that fine old tradition of sharing a song or recitation at a gathering is alive and well in the West. And because I do not sing well, I chose to learn Seamus Heaney's postscript. It is, after all, a Clare poem, familiar and loved by so many people across Ireland and the world. And sometime, make the time to drive out west into County Clare along the flaggy shore, Heaney tells us, and we enter the soothing magic of his poem, voyaging at once to that rocky curve of land between the Burren Mountains and Galway Bay, where the ocean is so often, as he said, wild with foam and glitter, where white swans do eternally swim on the slate-grey surface of Loch Marie in an echo of the children of Lear. I learned the poem off by heart, tutoring myself from recordings of Heaney's voice, and it wasn't long before I was offering it up at a party in a house in the hills above Milltown Malbay. At the party, there were a large number of men from many different corners of the world. They were living as asylum seekers in Milltown's direct provision centre, a run-down hotel where they slept four to a room and existed in a kind of limbo that Heaney might have described as neither here nor there. A fire blazed in the grate, and though the party grew hot, a young man from Georgia did not take off his Cossack hat all evening, not even when he stood up to recite what he said was a national poem. Its lines were full of passion, and though none of us understood a word he said, we all deeply felt how much the poem meant to him and his people. All that night, and for weeks afterwards, I was haunted by those dispossessed men, and I remembered something of how it is not to belong anywhere. And I remembered how my own life was when I first encountered Postscript. Thirty years ago, the poem used to hang on a wall beside a departure gate at Dublin Airport, a hurry-through place. I was then in a dissolving marriage, with a baby and a toddler, and things were bleak. I had always dreamed of being a writer, but was as far from writing as any person ever can be. Once or twice a year, I managed to take my small children to visit their London grandparents, and on the wall of Dublin Airport, I would always read Heaney's postscript, and even in my sadness, it managed to reach me and give me shelter. And once, in the rootless, difficult years that followed, I was travelling back to Ireland with the children and stuck in the slow hours of waiting for a delayed flight. And there, across a too brightly lit airport café, seated at another plastic table, were Seamus and Mary Heaney. And I was nothing to them, a young woman across a room 
struggling to keep her small children entertained, still not writing. But time passed. My children started school. I began to write, stories and poems, word by word, line by line, traversing boundaries, closing vast distances of time and space, until my writing brought me, once more, into the Heaney's company, into their kindness. When we met at festivals and readings, Seamus and Mary greeted me with the same generous respect they offered everyone, Seamus taking your hands in his and holding them warmly, pressing your fingers as if he wanted to let you know you were someone he really wished to talk to if only the duties of fame weren't calling him away. Those demands of fame meant his time was always accounted for, his calendar always full. My friends, he told us, are kind enough to leave me alone. But Seamus Heaney did not leave us alone. He stayed among us over and again, stepping through theatre dark into the harsh glare of spotlights to recite again the poems we wanted to hear, mid-term break, and when all the others were away at mass, and always postscript. I think he loved postscript most of all. He said that after a drive into the West, the poem had come like a quick, sidelong glimpse of something flying past, a sudden glimmer of earthed lightning. But he recognised its power and knew it could deliver us into the intense landscape of North Clare and stop our great hurry buffeting our hearts open, so that whatever our origins, whatever our destiny, we might for a moment be stilled and brought back home to the person we were meant to be. It's 1974, final year at Ulster University, and the end of college is beckoning for this 22-year-old. What would happen next was anyone's guess. I was writing poems as best I could and finding some of them published in Dublin or broadcast in Belfast. Out of the blue, I received at my student digs a letter from the South and within a handwritten note from Seamus Heaney with his Wicklow address side by side with my own temporary home in Port Stewart, County Derry. He was editing an anthology of new Irish poetry for Blackstaff Press called Soundings Two, and wondered if I had anything to offer, naming a couple of poems he'd seen in the new Irish writing pages of the Irish press. Could I? I was chuffed as punch and sent what I thought was a handful of possibilities and then thought no more of it the letter stored in the inside pocket of my one and only jacket.
I dare say that was around late spring. Then, one weekend a little later, a college contemporary called by the student house I was living in with the offer of a trip to Donegal. So off we went, a six-pack of Guinness in the back seat of the car. If there was a toothbrush or a change of clothing packed, memory doesn't recall. What I do remember is what happened on Craigavon Bridge in Derry. The bridge, named after Lord Craigavon, first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, was completed in 1933 in a world vastly different from the mid-1970s, as the North was rocked from top to bottom with the unfolding troubles, no place more so than Derry, Londonderry. The bridge crossing the Foyle was now a symbolic scene of marches and countermarches, and then the British Army moved in and set up control zones for local access and traffic flow. In the descending dark, a young soldier, as young as ourselves quite likely, stepped out from behind his bunker, flagged us down and requested ID. Where were we going? Was there anything in the boot of the car? My friend had his driving licence to hand and spoke precisely so nothing was remiss until my turn came. Can I see your passenger's ID? Guess who didn't take his wallet with him? No student card, no national insurance card, nothing. Not a thing to prove that I was anything other than a harmless citizen going on a trip for some cultural upgrading. I dug deep into my back pocket and with shock on my face turned to the silent brooding soldier and sputtered an excuse and then, panicking a little, dipped into my inside coat pocket and withdrew the white folded handwritten letter addressed to yours truly and pointed out with a fumble that I was the addressee and that the signature at the bottom of the letter was one of our best known and highly regarded poets. He looked at the letter and handed it back in to me. Miraculously, the fact that he could tick a box, passenger address and ID confirmed, nothing dodgy in the car, we were free to go on our way. Enjoy your Guinnesses, I thought I heard him say, but that's likely a misremembering. So there we were, heading out of Derry, heading westwards. Crossing over that bridge during the dark days of the Troubles was bizarrely made possible, I like to think, by that simple white sheet of typing paper with Seamus Heaney's writing in blue ink. It convinced the bemused and bored attention of a young British soldier that I was who I said I was. Safe to say, I never mentioned any of this to Seamus when I got to know him. I was too embarrassed. But the truth of the matter is that I credit his letter with getting me out of a very awkward situation all those years ago in 1974 on the Craig Avon Bridge in Derry. And as for our destination way back then, Seamus had got there well ahead of me, of course. In a relatively unusual swerve for him, the following year, 1975, he published a pamphlet of prose poems called Stations, based upon various autobiographical reflections, including The Stations of the West, about his first night staying in the Donegal Giltucht. The three short paragraphs culminate with a marvelling sense of travelling back in time. But the text also reveals just how the physical nature of memory is inscribed by Seamus Heaney in landscape, nowhere more so than in the dramatic landscapes of the Northwest, with its unforgettably named home places. But still I would recall the stations of the West, white sand, hard rock, 
light ascending like its definition over Ranafast and Erigal, Anagri and Kinkasla, names portable as altar stones, unleavened elements. used to say that whenever she gave a poetry reading, she brought the spirit of everyone who had ever been kind to her on stage with her. She would say, come with me. I need your help. I need you now. And it gave her courage. I try to follow that advice now. I said those words just before this reading. Sometimes during a conversation with friends about poetry, I end up saying, did I ever tell you my Seamus Heaney story? I have a lovely memory of Seamus Heaney. The preamble to my story begins years ago, when as an adult learner, I enrolled for a foundation studies course in McGee College, Derry. I was searching for something, a kindling that could spark a glimmer. I had stayed at home when our sons were young, but they were growing up, and I needed to move forward. The foundation studies involved a range of subjects, and luckily for me, one of the subjects was English, and it included poetry. And luckily for me, the lecturer gave us some Heaney poems to look at. I had never heard of Seamus Heaney before that time. I held a trepidation when it came to poetry. I thought I needed a teacher to explain a poem to me before I could appreciate it. The first Heaney poem that was put before us was The Docker. And as I read it, something in me shifted. I understood the poem and could appreciate the wordplay in his chosen images. I felt a sense of achievement. Seamus Heaney himself, in a video discussion, is in conversation with the poet Dennis O'Driscoll. Heaney describes first reading contemporary poetry when he was in his 20s. He said it gave him an eagerness, excitement, a sense of change. A moment of writing gave him a lift, a joy, a reward. That was exactly how I felt on reading the docker. There was a grace for me in discovering his poems. The kindling I had carried into McGee College was set alight, and I began writing poetry. My life took a whole new direction. So we move forward in my story to years after that first learning to an evening in West Donegal, a poetry event where I was asked to compare. 
I was really looking forward to that evening. I knew I would be introducing each writer and musician, but I would also be reading three of my own poems. And I knew that Seamus Heaney and Mary Heaney were in Donegal, and they would be in the audience. I felt comfortable comparing the event. The hall was full, and the audience was warm and appreciative. I was enjoying myself. I introduced several poets and musicians, and then it was my turn to perform as a poet. I said the title of my first poem, and then I thought, Seamus Heaney is listening to me. The thought began to drumbeat louder and louder within me. Seamus Heaney is listening to my poems. I started to shake, a nervous tremble that started at my toes and moved up my body. I could barely stand up. The nerves were rapidly coming close to strangling my voice. My husband and friends were sitting in the audience. I could see their expression of utter disbelief as they watched me quivering. When it came to the end of the first poem, I thought, I will not get through the next two poems unless I own my nerves. So I said into the mic, it's not easy when you are told, read a few poems, and oh, Seamus Heaney will be in the audience. There was a silence for a moment, and then from the back of the darkened hall, a voice rang out, you're doing grand, Denise. You're doing grand. Mr. Heaney himself. I started to laugh. The audience laughed. I settled into myself and finished reading two poems nerve-free. Afterwards, at the end of the evening, I went down the hall to Mary and Seamus, and I said to them, I can always now say that Seamus Heaney heckled me. <laughs> Mary laughed and she said, Ach, sure, that wasn't a heckle. And then Seamus looked at me in that enriching way that he had, and he said, You could read anywhere at any time, daughter. It was that word, daughter, that grounded when he said it made it feel sincere and encouraging. And now, when I'm doing a reading, and I feel nerves are about to invade, I hear him. You could read anywhere, at any time, daughter. And my soul settles. Thank you, Seamus. You were a gentleman.
I'm in my first year of secondary school in a history class. The walls are painted a nauseating red and the plaster around the bay windows peels. This room, the teacher says, used to be the very sick bay that Heaney wrote about in midterm break. The devastating elegy for his child brother killed in a road accident at a nearby bus stop. I was 12 or so and hadn't been exposed to Heaney whatsoever by that point, shockingly for a dairyman, but traipsed off to hunt him out in the school library. I read a foot for every year a few times, turning the phrase over in my mind. I had a four-year-old brother at that point and sat alone for a long time in the school library, ornately wooden and so quiet. For the remainder of that year, in that class that used to be that sick bay, I felt disconcerted. I imagined a young boy being delivered news about his brother Christopher, as though he were a tangible presence in the room when I should have been learning about Norman invasions, Henry VIII's per wives. This room had become freighted with emotion and meaning and a grief I had no access to. Such was my first introduction to the effect of poetry. I couldn't lay value or metrical worth onto how the red classroom was transfigured, but it was, and just to me. This experience was also my first introduction to how a room, a set of walls, maybe some rugs, and two coats of paint, lovingly applied, is so much more than the sum of its parts. It can hold the emotional memory of people in the way a static photograph or video recording cannot. Only, of course, if someone testifies to what went on there in the first place. Our emotional lives continue beyond us only if they are written down. This testimonial quality to poetry would become important to me later. I continue to be struck by Heaney's attention on the ordinary aspects of his early domestic life. In Stepping Stones, he describes the pantry and kitchen of his childhood home. Very small places. An armchair, a sofa under the front window, a cot for the baby on the inside of the jam wall, ordinary bow-backed kitchen chairs. This peels remarkably similarly to my commitment in my own writing to documenting interior space. Our circumstances are different, and the emotional truths we're trying to mine are too but there's a surprising confluence. We live in a reading and publishing world that prioritises identitarian allegiances. This is good in some ways. It writes past wrongs, redresses the great gulf where many voices should have been in the writing world of the past. It also harms imagination and limits mutual feeling. What could a poet who's not a gay man tell me that would be true? Why should I care about the birth of a child or a marriage? Any thinking like this is an impoverishment of the human spirit, and Heaney's poems led me out of the marvellous as I had thought it. In interviews, I've been asked what queer poets are my greatest influence, and I always pause. Influence is too tenuous a thing, quite like a radio frequency, the snatches of song or great conversation you hear from a kitchen radio as you're hanging laundry in the hall by the radiator. Mark Doty, yes. Richard Scott, too. But influence and inspiration should come from more than a mutuality in a poem's content. The quiet power of Claudia Rankine's poems, or indeed the poems of Heaney, especially the later work, that holds both a precision and an airiness 
And still, that Catholic mysticism I find so evocative of my own youth in Derry City. As a young gay man, I turned to the American poets as a way of looking for a kind of poem, a content that I could recognise and be recognised as a gay man. And that empowered me to write poems in an Irish tradition that has not long been that. What I've peeled apart in the years since is that legacy and literary heritage is a more complex matter than I had thought. I live in an Ireland where my generation are burdened with little economic prospects, an environment that is now boiling rather than warming. And in my poems, I write the domestic with that in mind. I was surprised and penitent when I felt a capacious and generative join between my concerns and Heaney's small places. My approach and concern in my poems is deeply different to Heaney's, and yet, such is the victory of poetry, a singular voice reaching out. I credit Heaney for first demonstrating the world-making power of poetry, and as someone who feels their place in the real one is so uncertain, this is a critical and empowering revelation. I believe that Heaney liked to quote the concluding lines of Law and Milosh's blacksmith shop. It seems I was called for this, to glorify things, just because they are. That Heaney's poems can reach out to me, a person of such a different experience of life, of religion, of Irishness, is part of their victory, and why they are a scapular in my pocket as I walk down the street to meet the many poets of many walks and ways who live in this place. I notice his poems poking from their pockets too. The photograph shows two little boys with guitars slung around their necks, their left hands on the frets, their right hands flung high in the air, as if the photographer had snapped them in the final moment of performance. They're up on a pretend stage, a picnic table in a woodland picnic area, and they look as if they might be the children of hippies from some nearby commune. Their hair is just that little bit longer than you'd expect, and there's something about the amount of denim they're wearing that suggests an alternative lifestyle. Late 60s California, perhaps. But the photograph was taken in County Wicklow in the early 70s, although the young brothers had in fact spent the academic year 1970-71 in the San Francisco Bay Area. One of their most memorable experiences was attending an open-air concert given by the folk singer and storyteller Pete Seeger. If I had a hammer, where have all the flowers gone? Casey Jones, Abby Yo-Yo, John Henry. They listened that sunlit morning to the thrilling, beguiling songs of those glamorous, radical times. And during the coming months, they would listen to them over and over again on a big, long-playing record 
until Seeger's voice and music began to represent the music of what happened in the course of that liberating year. But now their year of liberty was at an end. I took the photograph of those boys in the Devil's Glen Wood on the evening before they started school in Ashford. And I remember well the sadness I felt as their father. The bitter sweetness of that moment, which is both the end of the child's brief freedom as a creature of family and the beginning of his or her life as a citizen. The exit from Eden, as it were, before the entry into the roll book. And yet, it may be that the photograph affects me because it marks an unforgettable moment of beginning and ending in my own life. The next morning, which would introduce the children to their first taste of the discipline of the classroom, would give me my first morning of escape from it. A few months before, I had given notice to the English department at Queen's University that I would resign that summer. And now it was early September, and my wife and I had just made the move from a semi-detached security house in Belfast and a job at Queen's to the chancier life of a full-time writer in the adventure playground of Wicklow. So, for me too, the toy guitars held aloft, the dramatic gesture on the picnic table, the call of the wild green woods in the background, they've come to represent that moment of change. I remember very clearly coming back from the enrolling of the boys that Master Whelan did in the school down in Wicklow, going upstairs to inaugurate my own new freelance life. Sitting there under the low tongue and groove ceiling of the gate lodge we had rented, I was very conscious of the silence in the house and the absence of the children. But I was also conscious that for the foreseeable future, our livelihood would depend not upon the monthly salary check, but on the muse's favor on the pen and ink, and on my own writerly confidence and stamina. So it was a happy coincidence that the work I started on that morning was my first go at translating the story of Sivne Galt, the legendary king who deserted his former responsibilities to become a man of the woods. Just as there had been something marvelously fortifying about a thing that happened earlier down at the school, when Master Whelan was filling in the children's particulars on the roll book. When he came to the column where the father's occupation had to be registered, he asked me no question, but wrote down in a firm, clear hand, Askeliga, Phila. And I knew that from then on, I was going to be a poet in earnest. Tate's Avenue is a late love poem published in the volume District and Circle in 2006. The Tate's Avenue of the title is a street in Belfast where I was sharing a flat with my sister Anne when I first met Seamus.
The poem is set in the small backyard of the house where we lay reading in the sun at what was a defining moment in our relationship. In the two other stanzas, we are also lying on rugs. The first verse remembers our first visit very early in our relationship to the seaside town of Port Stewart. The second one is set in Spain in the early days of our marriage where we went with our two small boys to visit my sister Anne, who was living there then. The last two stanzas are set in Tate's Avenue sometime between 1962 and 1964. Tate's Avenue is one of my favourite poems. Not the brown and fawn car rug, that first one spread on sand by the sea, but breathing land breaths, its vestal folds unfolded, its comfort zone edged with a fringe of sepia-coloured wool tails. Not the one scraggy with crusts and eggshells and olive stones and cheese and salami rinds laid out by the torrents of the Gavir, where we got drunk before the corrida. Instead, again, it's locked park Sunday Belfast, a walled backyard, the dustbins high and silent, as a page is turned, a finger twirls warm hair, and nothing gives on the rug or the ground beneath it. I lay at my length and felt the lumpy earth, keen-sensed more than ever through discomfort, but never shifted off the plaid square once. When we moved, I had your measure, and you had mine. On this morning's programme, we heard Earthed Lightning by Grace Wells. From the Frontier of Writing was by Jared Daw. My Seamus Heaney Story by Denise Blake. And that was recorded at Miscellany Live in Ballyshannon some years ago. Where the Vegetables Were Cut by Michal McCann. Marked Present by Seamus Heaney from Miscellany Live at Listowel Writers Week in 2008. And Tate's Avenue by Seamus Heaney, introduced and read by Mary Heaney. The music was Open the Door for Three, which was by Liam O'Flynn. Tune for the Dairy Ones by Damien O'Neill. Here Beside Me by the Henry Girls. I've Grown Accustomed to Your Face by Lerner and Lowe, arranged and played by Scott Flanagan on piano. And If I Had a Hammer by Pete Seeger. On sound were Damien Chanel's and Lee Mullen. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And Michal McCann is one of the poets reading at Poetry Ireland and the Abbey Theatre's celebration of Seamus Heaney this evening and afterwards. For more from RTE's extensive tributes, archive and recordings of Seamus Heaney, go to rte.ie forward slash culture. And finally, to listen back to this morning's miscellany, go to the RTE Radio app or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.